Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. My name is Suzanne Rain and this is part of our series on resistance, radicalisation and religion, where we look at division and extremism in different parts of the world and at different times. Today our focus is on current violent conflicts in Africa, specifically those that involve Islamist extremist networks. And I'm joined by Dr. Nyanka Perdigal, who is the Programme Associate at the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism, GIFCT. Nyanka was formerly head of the ALC Peace and Security Fellowship Programme at the African Leadership Centre, King's College London. And her background is on leadership, state building processes, violent conflicts and peace building in Africa. So who better to talk us through what's going on? Welcome, Nyanka. We're, we're very grateful that you could join us. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for having me. So let's start. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's an enormous subject, but there are significant problems at the moment with instability, particularly driven by Islamist insurgencies of, of different kinds in, in different parts of Africa. And can we start with Mozambique, which is a country that we haven't talked about a lot historically in, in this context, but we really are now. And this seems to have been getting worse over the last couple of years. And, and in 2021, um, we've had a series of really kind of headline-making violent attacks, including beheading children, besieging and plundering the town of Parma. So, so what's going on in Mozambique and what's made it happen now? Mozambique? I would say, is now suffering uh, what I would call its third war over the last six decades. So all three have been the result of really complex interactions of national, regional, and global factors. For instance, the first one, the armed struggle for independence, lasted 10 years from 1964 to 1974, and then the post-independence war from 1976 to the peace agreements of 92. And these were kind of regional wars, but also they were fueled by local and geopolitics such as Rhodesia and South Africa were involved. There was also an internal conflict. Whilst what we're seeing today and what many call an insurgency in the north and east province of Cabo Delgado is driven by both internal discontent and a mixture of external factors. There is consensus that it began in October 2017, but it has escalated sharply since March 2020 and obviously has drawn increased international news coverage and debate. So if we uh, go to the core of the conflict, to understand it, one must look at the processes of Islamization, colonialism, as well as decolonization or independence, if you like. And now what I would argue is kind of a modernization process. So if we go back to the Arab expansion and the Islamization of the northern eastern coast of Mozambique, that resulted in kind of very particular political and social as well as cultural and religious institutions put in place in that area. But these institutions um, were, the Portuguese colonialism tried to enforce Christianity over those institutions, over that population, which had many years of Islamic tradition. And after independence, the ruling party, the Frelimo Marxist and kind of atheist state uh, party, also collided with the same centuries of old institutions uh, on this territory. And a, a French historian, um, Eric Morier-Genoux, actually says that the Muslims of Mozambique, despite being 
uh, numerically relevant, they were marginalized and they were fought against by colonial power and censored and repressed over time. So you have this kind of Western Christian and then atheist as well as Marxist values that were kind of enforced on this local population. And many scholars argue that this may have deeply affected the sense of dignity of the local population, but also created substantial resentment towards what we could call Western-inspired values, state institutions, Christianity, education. So you're starting to see here the same kind of rhetorics that a lot of Islamist uh, insurgents often use, right, against Western education and institutions. So I would say that what instigated this particular conflict is basically a combination of historical factors together with an aggressive penetration of external and local forces, very much linked to kind of this notion of global capitalism as uh, Cabo Delgado is actually a very rich region. They've found natural gas, uh, one of the biggest discoveries, actually. But that has not led to the development of the region or of the people. So there are these grievances that are very much rooted in, in kind of a historical context that have come to the fore. And so if we want to look at the Islamic kind of aspect of it, Ansar al-Sunnah's violent activities in the gas-rich gas province started really by targeting local police stations and villages around uh, 2017. But by May 2018, these attacks had reached horrendous proportions. We've started to see videos showing beheaded bodies, on social media, decapitated victims from particular villages and particular Palma, as you mentioned, Suzanne. However, it originally began to preach kind of a radical form of Islam and to build their own mosques. Uh, the local youth were beginning, beginning to be recruited and they began to oppose the more traditional forms of Islam that already existed, literally rejecting uh, individual liberties, refusing to send their children to school. And so this kind of internal dynamics began to arise. Thank you, Nanka. That was incredibly clear and very helpful. Um, what you described, though, as you said, was, was almost the really familiar pattern of historical grievance, identity, you know, resurgence of identity as defining a traditional Islamic, the sort of overlap between traditional Islamic culture and your own identity and your resistance to some kind of imposition of culture from outside. So, th so that's all very familiar. The violence also, sadly, is also very familiar. I suppose the question I've got is, is the extent to which that um, focus on Islamic heritage is shared across the Muslim population of Mozambique or whether the the sort of violent group is is just a tiny bit of it you know so so is it within a population or or does it actually have support amongst a much broader section of of the population yes i mean i think what is happening is is twofold there there is these these internal contradictions and relationships within the region itself but you also then have uh, the government and, and the capital, the Maputo and the elite, the political elite there, that have their own agenda on how they want this conflict to be perceived, um, even in terms of how, you know, the kind of interventions that they want to happen. So there's a, these two conflicting um, approaches to how we see what's going on. But if you 
if you there was a recent study actually by the the Institute of Security Studies um, that have managed to actually conduct field work, which has been very difficult for experts to even have access to the region. And they say that according to Islamic leaders in the area, locally known as sheikhs, uh, who were who were interviewed for this for the study. The first signs of extremism came to light actually in 2014, 2015 in the region when young people from the local mosques began to rebel against kind of this established uh, uh, mosques that they had. And and they began to practice what they call strange beliefs and practices. Um, So there's also indication that some of this came from regional countries. So Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, as well as the Congo DRC. So the insurgents spoke kind of local languages such as Kiswahili and Arabic. So they profess a brand of Islam which is both rejected and denounced by Islamic authorities in the region. So there's there's already this internal kind of uh, contradiction there. Um, But the attacks in Cabo Delgado began, as we've mentioned already, in 2017. So the group has been developing on the kind of an unconcerned eye of the local and central government. And they've, they've had at least two years, if we believe the, the reports, of social and psychological work to recruit, indoctrinate, uh, and transform a lot of the youth who have these grievances. I mean, Cabo Delgado is one of the most underdeveloped regions of Mozambique, despite being the richest. Um, so th- this is, is one of the key factors there. So I'm thinking about that timeline, and those of us who've been following the Islamic State the development of the caliphate of course that that matches exactly onto the sort of announcement of, of the caliphate in Iraq and Syria and then the pattern that we saw actually um across Europe where you had this sort of huge uptick in people who who wanted to do something and in the case of Europe most so if you could travel you you went and if you couldn't you did something locally and it looks like quite a coincidence that you also have this uptick of a new kind of um, radicalised youth in Mozambique at the same time. You mentioned how difficult it is to really know what's going on because it's just very hard to get there. And I think that's the case across a lot of East Africa and it's been the case for, for many years in Somalia as well. And But we there is a sort of a link of some kind, I think, between Somalia and Kenya and Tanzania and Mozambique. And the question that I think a lot of people are grappling with without really knowing the answer is, is the extent to which that link is, is there at all or is there but in a not organised way or is actually something that is organised so that there is support and direction coming down to you know, violent extremists in Mozambique from Somalia or Kenya. What do you think about that? I know it's very difficult really to know. Yes, I think it's very it's very difficult to, to know for sure. But from what the research that I've done, and I've seen other experts that are working in the region, is that there, there has been, especially with Tanzania, there have there has been reports in the media and from even from the Tanzanian government of several arrests, actually, very close to the border of insurgents that have been linked to what is happening in Mozambique. I think the the problem with uh, governments in East Africa trying to to state whether or not there is a link very much always stems from 
the reaction that they want to, to, to hear from the international community or even in the kind of intervention that, that they want. They also, not all governments want to ad- address the issue. They don't want to say that they do have this terrorist problem. But local civil society groups in Mozambique have actually claimed that, yes, there are kind of, there is contact with ISIS, uh, but command and control remains local. The grievances remain important as to why insurgents is insurgents are, are being recruited. So they, they have stressed that the role that government and business have to play in the conflict is actually significant. And these are claims that are not, I'm not sure they're not verified, it's a claim by civil society groups, is that the Mozambican government, if it begins to actually address and and, and to admit that the issue stems from some kind of these economic um, grievances, it would then not have the support from the international community and the regional uh, bodies such as SADC and, and from South Africa, for example, because that is what it wants. It wants a military solution, which is aggressive and which will not lead to kind of a diplomatic um, understanding between the different factions. And this is what we've seen in Nigeria. If I take us to West Africa very briefly, it's the same kind of mistakes. So I so I do want you to take us to West Africa now. I think it's time for us to, to pivot over. But just to just to focus on what you were saying about the local civil society groups. I think that's very interesting because, of course, you can look at these conflicts on a sort of macro scale and say, you know, Islamic State is spreading across Africa. It's, you know, it's it's claimed that the Mozambique attacks are happening in the name of the Central Africa province. You've got the West Africa province. So from if you're Islamic State and you're drawing a map of Africa, you have portioned it into provinces which you're administering now. But as you said, that that on the ground, these are local conflicts within societies and uh, exploiting religious divisions sometimes within countries. So so could you say a little bit more about um, what local civil society groups recommend in terms of those those areas where there is essentially a religious clash, um, which is all embroiled in this whole question of politics and governance what they're saying is actually that let's not just focus on that particular aspect Um, I know that there's a lot of debate especially in academic circles on you know whether economic grievances do lead to conflict or not Um, but they are really insisting on this uh, aspect but that is actually one of the key um, issues at stake in the region Again, I can't state enough how underdeveloped and underdeveloped the region is. And you have these massive um, oil and gas companies, which I will not name partic- any particular ones, but they are massive and they, they attract a lot of investment. But that does not translate to the local population. And that has been and, you know, if we even if we want to tap into the kind of long term historical and religious um, contradictions that are already existing in the in the region these are just used at the end of the day to fuel even more and to make sure that you are able to recruit and of course this is also part of what some have called kind of a global moment a jihadi global movement um, where it's it's the moment where every conflict has been you know isis has been able to to use that uh, and to claim um, some of those conflicts 
So thank you. So moving, as you say, zooming out, let's let's move to Northwest Africa here. Um, again, I mean, the, the, the difficulties preceded the Islamic State, but, but we now have the Islamic State in the mix as well. UN peacekeeping missions have been active for a long time. So the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali, is a bit of a mouthful, MINUSMA, was created in, in 2013. And there have been so far 241 MINUSMA fatalities, which is, which is an extraordinary number. I mean, that's, that's, I think, one of the highest, if not the highest number of fatalities in, in a UN peacekeeping mission anywhere in the world. So it's, it's astonishing we don't talk about it more, frankly, um, not least because one of the highest troop contributors is is Bangladesh. Um, so, you know, there's hats off to them for for keeping going with this. Um, most recently, um, over this Christmas, uh, British troop deployment were also deployed um, to to join the operation. So, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> where should we start? <laughs> I mean, much of the coverage of the of a lot of these conflicts on the continent. I mean, the insta- the ongoing instability, both in Mozambique, but also in the Sahel, in West Africa, as well as Central Africa. So it's it's a bit all over the continent, as you mentioned. Um, a lot of the focus, I would argue, has been a little bit super- superficial uh, at times, and because it is focusing on the single issue of whether external actors should intervene militarily or not and if 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 not or, or if they do which of the numerous candidates should do so there are so many different external uh, uh international organizations that want to take put their hands at it but we really have to i think interrogate to what extent these peacekeeping missions uh, are able to truly have an impact there is often a rush to respond, uh, rightfully so, but without truly looking at what kind of response is justified or is needed from, and, you know, it's always the, turning to the international community, but they're, they're also looking within, within Africa itself, within its regional bodies, such as ECOWAS or SADC in the southern region. Um, and it is often the case that a military solution is not the way forward. And we seem to forget of all the different conflicts over the years in Africa where this has, this has happened already and we're doing the same mistakes again. So we need to also ask, peacekeeping missions are inherently about stopping a conflict, but they also are often packaged with a more extensive kind of state building processes. But what are we rebuilding in the first instance? Who are we involving in such processes? So even if we just returning to Mozambique very briefly, the rush for military support has caused enormous debate. Civil society groups, as I said, have urged leaders to consider the lessons actually learned from places such as Somalia or even the Niger Delta. And any kind of intervention in the region, be it in Mozambique or in, in the Sahel, should also provide an avenue to pursue kind of political and diplomatic solutions. And this often means that you really need to understand the root causes of the conflict. I know this may sound pedantic and very academic, and it's not often what peacekeepers want to hear, but uh, a former peacekeeping operation, uh, UN mission in in Guinea-Bissau, a small country in West Africa, has said once, you need to really 
penetrate with as in be within society and understanding what are their condition what do they actually need in order for you to be able to address the conflict that's a powerful argument it makes it really hard though because i'm just um al naba the islamic states um, magazine recently stated that there are fierce ongoing battles against the armies of disbelief in Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon and their apostate militias. Um, You could actually widen that as well and include Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso. So these are these are both old fault lines and new ones, aren't they, I think. And if we're talking about dealing with it through a series of local dialogues what are the models I and mean, this this has been going on particularly in Nigeria for for a very long time with um, Boko Haram and it seems like not really any progress has been made at all no indeed I mean some people call them uh, the, the the G5 of the Sahel if we look at what is going on both in Mali um, it's a kind of a myriad of issues, both from a terrorist kind of um, point of view, but also from a national kind of infighting within the military. It's also focused. It's also been faced with huge climate change uh, issues. So it's it's a very difficult situation in Nigeria. You have the Boko Haram movement, which was has been infamous for kidnapping hundreds of schools schoolgirls at Chibok. This was in 2014. Um, and it has been carrying out major attacks, declaring a jihad actually in 2010. Um, so the the kind of you have Burkina Faso, you have Chad, you have Mauritania, as you mentioned, Suzanne, and they are facing coup after coups, as well as being a kind of what is now called the hotbed of of jihadi. If you think about uh, what you mentioned about Al Naba in its recent uh, comment is that if we look at the crisis in the Sahel, it is not just now a government versus insurgents. There is also a rivalry, according to some experts, between supporters of Al-Qaeda and supporters of ISIS. So this rivalry is becoming so intense that some experts predict that Africa will actually is going to be the battleground of jihad in, for the next 20 years, and it may replace the Middle East. That's a strong statement. Whether this is true or not, of course, only time will tell. But if we look at how Al-Qaeda and ISIS share this kind of common loathing for secular Western-supported rulers, who, who they call apostates, but they also have major differences in their approach. So ISIS seems to go for extreme graphic violence, as demonstrated by the gruesome beheading videos across the Sahel and in Mozambique. Whilst Al-Qaeda and its affiliates has tried to win over the loyalty of local populations who tend to not have enough confidence in their governments, in their police, and so it exploits these kind of regional and ethnic grievances. So it is indeed becoming a hugely complex situation that needs a lot more than just very strong military forces. Yes, and indeed, I remember during the sort of really intense days of the Libyan civil war, not that it's over, but there was a very intense period, it became very confusing, actually, who was a member of which extremist group, because essentially people were people were shifting and choosing according to local dynamics. And those 
roots again there's something really fascinating for for people who don't understand africa about about the old trade routes across the Sahara Desert, which have been enabling for, for centuries um, movement of, of people, which are smuggling routes now for, again, movement of people, movement illicit groups, movement of arms and, uh, you know, cigarettes, drugs, whatever, and terrorist movements. And the question about who controls those routes and the fluidity of, of your membership of different groups is one that's impossible to understand as an outsider, and, and one of the reasons I presume why why France has in French forces have been there now since 2013 in the Sahel, and I don't again I don't feel that they're making the progress necessarily that that they would want to make unless you say differently. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think France, obviously, for those who don't know, is, is the former colonial power of a lot of the of the G5 um, Sahel countries. So. It has those vested interest in in maintaining kind of order and 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 also bringing peace as much as it can. But again, it and I think it's actually it is not making as much progress as we would like. But I would argue that it has taken a different approach. It has really tried to involve the five countries a lot more in in providing training, in providing uh, arms, in order to be able to also give them some kind of autonomy, but also as they would know best as well in order to, in how to address uh what is going on in the region it it is not it won't it won't be easy to know for sure how, you know who controls the regions where are those lines drawn as they may not be clear cut and as you said Suzanne people may pick and choose depending on their grievances depending on on where they sit one of the things one of the phrases that we use in the west to describe places where we don't really know what's going on um is ungoverned space and you can make an argument that that the sahel is and always will be ungoverned space it's not as easy to make that argument when you're talking about a country like nigeria which is in many senses one of one of the most sort of like advanced and dynamic countries in in africa but has this sort of serious fault line in bet- between essentially and i you know we don't want to focus on religion but but it, between christian parts and and islamic parts um to what extent does it feel like it's struggling or or is is there a good news story or how should we view what's happening there no, I, I, unfortunately, I wouldn't say that we have good news in Nigeria. It, it is, it is indeed one of the countries in West Africa that would, I would argue, is on the stronger side in, in terms of it being able to, you know, control its borders. It has a functioning democratic government, but it also um, faces significant kind of internal issues. There is. Um, this divide between the Christian and the um, Muslim side. And again, um, it is very much linked to the Islam, um, the Islamic side being poorer. Um, it has always been, this is an historical kind of, uh, uh, an historical um, context. So this has always been the case. And and again, these are grievances that are used. And, and I think in Nigeria, the Boko Haram situation has actually escalated probably beyond what the government at the time thought it could. I think they were caught by surprise by the, you know, the extent to which um, it got out of control. I think it began 
again, similar to what is happening in Mozambique, some some connections there, something that could have been resolved uh, relatively easily by really addressing the situation faced by its 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 population. It is is a, a failure of government, I would say. It's a failure of leadership, and it's something that is is happening across the continent, unfortunately. And is that we're going to wrap up soon? But is that failure of leadership that you're talking about? Is that feeding into a political dynamic where the people in the Christian part of the country are saying we need to do something about this in a positive or no, you know, but actually in a positive, I'm thinking, are they saying we recognise that there is a problem here and that just having a set of military engagements is not the answer. So maybe we need to do something differently politically. Is that is that happening? No, I, I'd say it, it isn't happening. And and it's a great question because it, it loops us back to what I did for my PhD thesis, which was looking a kind of what I call a leadership process. So trying to understand leadership, not just from looking at those that are leading, but looking at that kind of interaction between those leading, but also those that are following, if you like, um, the leadership process. And that is the problem. I think that the political elite, but also just the, the what I could call the bourgeoisie or the the elite in both both Mozambique, we can talk about Mozambique and Nigeria uh, simultaneously, is that unfortunately, until the elite is not affected by what is by what is going on, they will remain quite far from it, and they will remain. They will want to keep the status quo, which at the end of the day, will benefit their own interests. And I think that is very much the key as to which, you know, this failure of leadership and governance always re- comes back to what I, I argue is a, a kind of a lack of mutual understanding. If those that are leading are not able to in, understand, even at the base, basic level, what both in Cabo Delgado or in the northern uh, parts of Nigeria what are the people really going through? Those are the people you're supposed to lead over. You're supposed to provide basic goods and services. If you're not able to understand what they are going through, you will not be able to kind of resolve uh, the ongoing grievances and kind of the resulting violence that will emerge. So if I understand you correctly, I think what you're saying, which is which is a typical problem, is that essentially when you have a violent resistance, the natural thing for for the leading party to do is to look for a security solution. And either on purpose or, or actually just by accident because of the course of events, that then ends up playing up the divisions among the local population because they see essentially a violent Islamist adversary who is kidnapping children and beheading children and therefore it naturally chooses to support a government whose policy is a military one or a repressive one. Is is that kind of, I mean, that seems to be what what has evolved in both situations. Yes, I mean, I think, so what I'm trying to say is that it is something that in particular um, during my time at King's College London at the African Leadership Centre, a lot of the research we did there was to try and understand, obviously, the, the root causes of conflict and why it emerges. Is why, why would young people want to commit such atrocities, for example? You know, you must be completely desperate. Um, you must have absolutely nothing to lose in order to 
join such a movement. So it, it's really about if there is a lack of leadership, if you are facing these you know, grievances over many, many years, over many generations, who do you turn to? So it's about um, kind of finding that relationship with someone else, which is not the state. So if you have this lack of leadership, this failure in governance, in, in, in you know, being able to even provide the basic schools and, and education and, and health services, you then, you turn, you turn to the nearest, who's going to provide that for you? And I've seen that across other countries in West Africa, where with a lack of education due to strikes and governments not paying salaries, people actually turning to Islamic schools. So it's a void. It's a leadership void that is filled by other groups and often violent ones that are able to tap into this kind of grievance. Dr. Nyanka Perdigal, that was a tour de force. Thank you so much um, for spending your time talking to me today. And um, you've set a challenge for the leaders of quite a lot of African countries. And I hope (laughs) they rise to it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Suzanne, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at @camgeopolitics, and all our events are advertised online on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.